So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because we know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. Hello and welcome back everybody to Sanity Podcast. I have a very special panel today and I could probably spend a whole episode telling you why each and every single one of these people are amazing to have on the show. But I think I'm going to do things differently this time and I'm going to have everybody introduce themselves because we have multiple guests. Uh, Today's uh, topic is how to use metaphor to aid in therapy, such as pop culture, superheroes, and other themes, and we'll jump into that after the introductions. So Jessica, do you want to start us off with telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at NYU Langone Health, and I do a whole bunch of different things, including uh, therapy as well as media and consultation. I work with teams, companies, do research. Um, I'm a co-host on the Psychiatry Show on Dr. Radio on Sirius XM. I'm an advisor for Wondermind, which is a mental fitness company uh, founded by Selena Gomez and a couple other really talented folks like Mandy Teefy and Daniela Pearson, and then do a whole bunch of just other types of media engagements with journalists and uh, TV hosts and things of this nature. And I love talking about depression, anxiety, ADHD, and just hacking your mind's engine and learning to be the best version of yourself. And um, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome on the show. And um, th- th- you should be a natural at this with your experience being on the radio often, right? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Sandra, how about you uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm not on the radio often, so we'll see how this goes. I am Sandra Pimentel, <laughs> also a clinical psychologist. I'm the chief of child and adolescent psychology at Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Uh, I'm the director of our anxiety and mood program in our youth services and also um, co-director of our emerging adult program. So dealing a lot with kids, uh, adolescents, emerging adults, and trying to make cognitive behavioral therapy and therapy in general as fun as possible. As I said, I'm in Mont- I'm at Montefiore in the Bronx, home of the New York Yankees. Um, I love the Yankees. I love sports in particular. And so I love talking about and how to include, whether it's sports or, or pop culture in general, um, you know, and, and the folks that, that we can reference like Cardi B and Lizzo and uh, some cooler folks than I to to enhance <laughs> reaching out to kids and, and talking about uh, therapy. Very I'm excited cool. to be here too. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show because I'm a sci-fi nerd. I don't watch sports. <laughs> so I'm Star Trek, <laughs> Battlestar Galactica. So having yeah. the sport perspective should be really amazing. Yes. All right, Jason, we have another Jason, uh, another brother in name. So Jason, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? All right. Well, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I, I like uh, doing podcasts with other people named Jason. Um, oh, perfect. That's one of, uh, I, I guess that's a new side project that I'm working on, seeking <laughs> out Jasons and, and talking to them. Um, I practice clinical and sports psychology. Uh, I'm in a group practice in Southern California called CBT SoCal or CBT Center of Southern California. Uh, let's see. I specialize in OCD, insomnia, uh, anxiety, sports psychology, um, when I'm not working with uh, clinical um, populations. I'm working with NCAA athletes, uh, doing fun stuff like improv comedy and uh, other team building activities that help them to uh, feel embarrassed, feel performance anxiety, 
probably even feel cringy, but then focus on their task anyway. Uh, so that's a lot of fun for me. It's usually a lot of fun for the athletes. And uh, I also, um, I love sci-fi. I love uh, Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, lots of different fandoms. And I love going on podcasts and talking about it. Well, that's that's absolutely great. Well, thank you for coming on from California. Uh, that's mm-hmm. awesome. And that's very cool that you're working with those athletes. I did stand-up comedy one time. And it was one of the most terrifying oh, nice. things that I ever did in my life. So I could only imagine how effective doing improv, which is not a rehearsed script, is even more right. uh, could anxiety-provoking. So very cool. All right, Kristen, you're up. Excellent. Well, thank you for, for having me here as well. I'm also a clinical psychologist. And um, as with uh, Jessica, I'm at uh, NYU Langone Health. And I'm an assistant professor there in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, I primarily do research, actually, in our anxiety, stress, and prolonged grief program. Uh, My main focus of my research is in exercise interventions for people with anxiety and depression. Um, But I also do some clinical work and um, primarily use cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT and love to integrate metaphors in, in there in general, and especially pop culture metaphors when I get the chance and have somebody who's um, welcoming it in my therapy. Um, and I'll, I'll say my, my favorite ones to use are Disney movies. I'm uh, a Disney nerd and have been every princess for Halloween, probably um, starting at age one um, until currently age 35. <laughs> and, uh, and I love uh, all TV and movies, a lot of trashy reality TV, but I try to keep that out of the therapy room unless they really want it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like trashy reality TV could be great. I talk about the Bachelor in therapy, so oh, yeah. I'm that's, with you on trashy reality one, TV. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we could do another episode just talking about the Bachelor. Yes. It will be nothing about psychology, just just <laughs> us and the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. Don't forget the Bachelorette. Oh, I'm Bachelor in Paradise. Of course. Okay, Simon, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks so much for having me and all of us on. And- as you know, we've been planning this for quite some time, and I'm so glad we made it work. And I've had the good fortune of talking with all the other panelists at different times about the use of metaphors in, in therapy. So it's a real treat to be on. I'm, I'm chief of psychology here at Montefiore Medical Center and just hit professor of psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. So I'm pleased to break that news on your podcast. Although that's nothing to do with it, but... Yes. I don't think that changes my level of expertise in talking about <laughs> metaphors, but it's a nice little thing for the CV. Um, I, I, I like, I, I mean, I think my fascination with stories and metaphors and analogies comes in the vein of how do you get people to remember the, the good stuff that we offer in CBT when so little of what we try to teach our patients gets carried session to session and carried forth? And how do we use images or stories or metaphors to to drive home some of the points and and in the spirit of dissemination and helping people become more efficient at remembering our content i'm fascinated with how it started with very bread and butter type ideas and now we've branched into superheroes and 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 pop uh, or, or pop culture and and fiction and all these other variants that really help have patients grab hold of what we're trying to teach so that's my angle for today. I'm really fascinated with how we can apply our principles and have them be digestible and, and memorable for our patients that we work with. 
Okay, and I think everybody on uh, the panel and 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 myself, uh, congratulations on the achievement, and that's absolutely wonderful uh, to hear. Thank you. Okay, so one thing I've said on my show before is that therapy doesn't need to be so sterile and so boring, right? It doesn't need to be so serious. It could be fun, and I laugh with my patients, uh, particularly if we're doing like prank calls for social anxiety. At the end of the prank calls, we'll sit there and just laugh at, at what happened or dancing on the street corner or something like that. So I love this idea of bringing in fun things into therapy to make it more fun. And Simon, since I've known you the longest, I, I'll pick on you first, and you guys, you know, jump in when you feel like it's relevant, but how did you even get started with this idea that it's important to bring the, the, these type of cultural metaphors in to help therapy improve and be more fun? And how did you all like, you know, basically get on this kick? Yeah. Oh, thanks. I mean, it's a great question. And I, I, I'd like to link it back actually to grad school where my, my mentor in grad school was a, was a person named Arnold Lazarus and he was an early CBT founder and, and one of the luminaries in the field before he passed away. And his variant on CBT was something called multimodal therapy or MMT. And, and one of the, the dimensions that he was particularly attuned to was an imagery dimension and part of his model, which was called a basic ID model. So, so he elaborated on thoughts and feelings and included things like sensations and images in the work that he did. And so in my work with him as a supervisor, he was constantly referring me to material, early material in the field that that used or suggested therapists use metaphors with patients to enhance the content of the sessions. So so there's early books that 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 link back to the sort of origins of language and how how messages were passed along in, in different communities on customs and, and the history of the community that that then capitalized on those elements that you could borrow from and distill to help translate some of our concepts to patients. So it started there. And so I've had a fascination for a long time. And then it's as the literature's emerged and grown over time, I've paid attention to it and tried to collect a little folder of articles that I, I review from time to time. And as I've talked to colleagues, we started to share stories and examples with one another. Now, as you know, there's books published on the topic and you can, you have, you have, at your fingertips, a whole series of books that allow you to pick and choose depending on where you are with different patients and different concepts to use in the sessions and try them out. Oh, very cool. I've always thought about uh, how like the, the spoken story was one of our very first teaching models before we had written we wrote anything down, we told stories and we passed it on. And I never connected two and two together with why this might be a great idea. Well, like, yeah, no duh, like human beings learn from stories that we tell each other. So why not metaphors and pop culture in order to do that? Um, how about anybody else say, you know, like Jessica, how did you get into the idea of, of using metaphor in therapy? So I think I've always been interested in finding ways to make therapeutic concepts more relatable and to connect with people that I have in the therapy room. I think when it comes specifically to metaphors, I actually have to give a huge shout out to Kristen here um, because she, a number of years ago when we were postdocs together, she gave a killer talk about metaphors and um, how to use them in the therapeutic environment. And she really takes, she gets a lot of credit in this. And so Kristen, thank you. Um, but I think what's no really problem. cool about <laughs> we were both docs together, so we have a long history of learning together in terms of things um, that we do in the therapeutic space. So it's pretty cool. 
Um, I think what's so neat about it is that it allows us, of course, to connect with with the patients, the clients that we have in the therapeutic space, and to show them that we are human and to take what can potentially be abstract concepts and make them a little bit more digestible and something that we can connect with on a, a level that feels more approachable. And I think that's really important when we're dealing with medical conditions, chronic mental illness, and just stress and the complexities of life and being able to see things outside of ourselves, I think is really powerful and metaphors serve in that way. Um, And something that I talk about a lot is, you know, boundaries obviously exist in the therapeutic relationship and they're there for a reason in order to protect the space and to protect our clients and our patients. Um, But what that sometimes means is that we need to be creative in in finding ways to connect with the people that we're doing therapy with so that way we can show them that we align with them and that we understand their experience and that we are humans walking in the same world together. And I think using metaphors, particularly in pop culture or sports or things of this nature, is a great way to do that because we can connect in those human ways in ways that still protect the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship and the integrity of that space. And so I think it's a cool way to make it fun, make it light. Um, I think a lot of my patients would <laughs> would agree that I like to use humor and sarcasm in ways that are, of course, you know, appropriate for whatever it is that we're talking about. But um, sometimes it takes these weighty topics and just makes them easier for us to talk about and to connect and to get past hurdles that are really challenging sometimes in making progress. And Again, like using these metaphors and and um, all of these references and things of this nature really allow us to utilize some of those basic human tools. And for someone like myself, again, who likes humor and sarcasm and things like that, it's it's fun. It just makes it fun. Well, Kristen, how do you feel that you changed Jessica's whole life trajectory with one? <laughs> well, I, I'm always here to try to get people to watch more TV and movies. So <laughs> I think I, I'm, I'm happy to, to say that I, I've done that for, for not only Jessica, but maybe many of her patients. <laughs> oh, without um, question. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that it, it's something, I mean, it's obviously useful in therapy. I think it's also something that, you know, as therapists, it's nice to be able to kind of like connect to people, show our human side, as Jessica said. And also, for me, it's a big self-care activity. It's like a huge part of my life behind the scenes uh, as a therapist. So it, it's a fun way to bring that in to my professional space too, which was part of the reason we got this panel together because I was like, I like this stuff and I want to bring it to a conference too. Um, But I think, you know, not only is it kind of relatable, I think, you know, what we could also do is take what the patients give us too. Um, Because oftentimes when we're talking with our patients or just in that chit chat as we're walking to the therapy room, which is kind of no longer a thing, but maybe as we're catching up on the week on our virtual sessions that sometimes they'll mention something and oftentimes in in my sessions, it ends up being something pop culture related and you can take that and run with it. And that's, I think the best use of metaphors is something that a patient brings in because then, you know, it's going to be relatable to them. Um, You can always try to bring one up, um, but I think it's important not to force it too um, because if they don't, they haven't seen the movie or TV show or don't like it, then you're violating kind of the main purpose of using metaphors in the first place, which is, you know, being able to relate to them and have them remember it and have it sink in. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And Sandra, what got you on the metaphor train? Yeah, it's, um, I think related to a lot of what people have said already. Uh, I'm a kid person. And so I think, you know, you have to be able to describe CBT concepts and constructs, whether you're talking to a 25-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 5-year-old. And, and kids rarely self-refer for treatment, right? So we're always looking for that hook to get them to, I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in New York City, right? That they're going to refer themselves for treatment. And so, you know, uh, trying to find that hook and that connection, and sometimes it's as straightforward as they like Spider-Man. And so you give them a Spider-Man sticker to reinforce or, or part of their behavior plan. And other times it's, you know, superhero analogies and, and trying to find ways that uh, will inspire them to, to understand some of the, the constructs that, that we're trying to teach. I think that's part of the answer that comes to mind. I remember uh, a patient of mine in graduate school. I was not a uh, reality TV watcher and she loved Survivor. Whenever the first year of survivor was and she loved elizabeth who's now elizabeth hasselbeck or whatever and so i was like she keeps talking about this elizabeth person so i started watching it to try to connect with this patient she's probably in her 30s now <laughs> which i, I don't <laughs> want to think about whatever um and so sometimes it's like the intentional stuff that we do to be to try to create that hook and sometimes it's i think the uh the incidental the stuff that we already do whether it's tv shows we already watch or or you know yankees or things that i'll talk about at, at any point and so, you know, I think um, much like everyone else, trying to make it fun, uh, creative, uh, and trying to get that that hook in, especially especially with kids and, and emerging adults. Yeah. So, so how much Paw Patrol do you watch now? To uh... depends on the kid, right? <laughs> it, it's true. I know Simon, your your son used to love Paw Patrol, right? We've, we've done. It's funny how when you have kids too, it, you you use the metaphors for them, but they also drive the content depending on what's what's trending right now. So it's, it's, it's all cocoa melons for me right now. Oh, it's it's cocoa melons. <laughs> <laughs> well, well Simon. But even in those stories, there's even in the show, there's some of the little songs they do have stories you could use. Like yeah. when the girl's trying to learn how to skip rope. <laughs> um, so, so Simon, who's your favorite pup out of sky patrol? I mean, oh, Paw Patrol. Paw Patrol yeah, sorry. You know, my son used to have a, have a leading towards sky. Yeah. So, Every kid so has a lean towards Sky. I feel like Sky, and who's the other one that's very popular? He's like the police officer. Oh, there's Chase, there's Chase, Rubble. Chase, Chase, and Sky seem very popular. You can okay. tell we're adult people because I'm just like I have no idea. <laughs> You're like, who are these people? <laughs> you go where you must, you know. <laughs> okay, Jason, and and how did you get working with metaphor? Yeah, um, listening to other people talk, uh, I, I think uh, those uh, stories are great and, and uh, very interesting. And I almost wish that I was coming from it from the perspective of, you know, wanting to be a great therapist and having a master plan and, um, you know, uh, using all the tools that are needed and all that stuff. Uh, and I kind of am in a sense, but really, I'm more of a movie fan and a TV fan. And then I ended up being a, a psychologist. Um so initially, I just really enjoyed, uh, you know, uh, well, of, of course, watching like, Game of Thrones and and uh, lots of great movies and Star Trek and Star Wars and, and uh, um, all that stuff. And uh, when Game of Thrones was very popular, um, uh, I just loved thinking about the characters and understanding them and understanding their motivation, 
and um, and kind of trying to predict what's going to happen next in the show. And I thought, man, it would be really cool to go on a podcast and, and talk about stuff like this and, and maybe other other uh, great movies and TV shows, too. Um, and then I ended up going on a podcast with some colleagues. Uh, it's called Psych Rally. And um, we we did an episode right before the final season of Game of Thrones was going to come out. And at that time, we didn't know what was coming for us. And we were very excited. And we had all these great predictions. And we were really looking forward to it. And we talked about the different characters, you know, conceptualizing them uh, based on CBT and um, talking about how we would, you know, work with them and, and then making predictions for the show and stuff. And then the season came out and, you know, that's a different story. But it was a lot of fun, um, you know, doing that episode and, and thinking about the characters. And um, and we got feedback from other therapists who said they listened to it and they really enjoyed it. And they started talking about uh, the metaphors in therapy with their own clients. And then that kind of woke me up a little bit more because uh, I work with adults and at times we, it would just naturally turn into, you know, talking about, um, you know, Jedi or, or whatever it might be. And my clients would get really excited. And at that time, I would feel a little awkward because I didn't want them to leave session and then think, you know, I paid all this money. And then we <laughs> talked about Star Wars. So I was a little hesitant. <laughs> so I was a little hesitant to do it too much. But um, over time, I've gotten more comfortable with it. And I've... Um, used it much more as a metaphor and kind of draw from my clients, um, you know, what, what they've learned from these characters, um, you know, what it is that they admire about them, um, you know, how would this character handle some of the situations that they find themselves in. And uh, it has been a, a big source of um, help for clients who, who can look at those strengths and then um, see that they also have those strengths and, and see that they can also use them in their daily lives. And it's, it's not just in fantasy or in TV where, um, you know, someone can face their fear or, um, you know, do something based on their values and, and kind of save the day. You can also do that in, in everyday activities in your own personal life. Uh, and one thing I'm sort of getting is that it's not just metaphor. There's also power in role modeling with healthy characters or I, I don't know the opposite of anti-role modeling, like characters you shouldn't be like. I, maybe there's a word for that that I can't think of. Um, so there's also an activist component of it and learning from these characters. Yeah, I, I would say I have I had one memory of one patient who was big fan of This Is Us, as am I, um, cry every episode, um, so sad it's gone. <laughs> um, but uh, she came in one time and said, oh my God, I now understand what I'm like when I'm anxious to my boyfriend because I saw Randall do it. And now I understand why that is so distressing for him to see when I'm feeling that way. And it was just a whole uh, discussion about kind of that revelation of being able to see it play out um, from an outside perspective. Uh, and I think that beautifully leads me into um, my, my next phase of questioning here is because you could do therapy and you could just be straight on with the person's issue that they're coming in with, with the real factors that are going on in their life and the real, the real people and staying within their world. Right. Uh, 
what is the added utility of pulling out of them and going into the metaphor? Like why, why even do this? What is the added benefit rather than just staying in their reality? And I'll leave that open to anybody to jump in. Well, uh, a lot of times people will have their, their favorite uh, genres or favorite fandoms and uh, it can mean a lot to them. And sometimes people can be a little bit embarrassed by it and not really talk about it too openly. And you need to uh, kind of build rapport and then draw it out of them. And then sometimes people are very, um, very open about it. And they write fan fiction and they, uh, you know, watch the movie or their favorite TV show after a long hard day of work, you know, on, on a regular basis. And it's, it's very comforting to them. So these are things that uh, can, can mean a lot to people and, um, and can evoke strong emotion and, and the characters can really live with them in their mind. Uh, so it's, it's just a, it's like an instant connection where the person will immediately understand the metaphor and it could immediately mean a lot to them if you're drawing it from them and it's you know and and if, if they do people don't always have some kind of favorite symbolism or metaphor but oftentimes they do and um, it just makes your job a lot easier and means more to them huh. yeah i would say also you can start to use it as shorthand later on um because instead of saying you know something like oh remember that time we talked about cognitive restructuring and then nobody remembers what that means, <laughs> then you can bring up, uh, you know, a certain character and like, what would Jon Snow do here or something like that, whatever you had used to illustrate that concept. And it just becomes uh, something that's kind of an instant, oh, yeah, I should be using this practice in this moment. Um, and, and this is true for adults, but Sandra, I'm thinking about children. Is there the idea that it makes it a safer experience to interact with the emotions? Because maybe we're not talking about them directly experiencing it, but rather those people experiencing it. So there could be some pre-processing for the behavioral folks, like an exposure to the emotion first before jumping into it themselves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things we do, for example, when we're working with kids who have OCD is we t or their anxiety, we teach them to externalize it, uh, name it call it something outside of themselves or, or when they're when we're teaching them to you know identify their automatic thoughts or their negative automatic thoughts uh, how to challenge them or what would you tell a friend to do in that situation so we use you know externalizing as a as a skill all the time and if you can do it for a relevant readily available you know someone uh, that or some character that's accessible to them all the better you know there's there are uh, you know pop culture references all around that can you know that you can draw uh, kids into for sure hmm. um i i had a kid do that once where i had them i said draw a monster but unfortunately that movie monsters inc had just come out and so those were like fun friendly monsters and so it, it did not turn out the way that it was supposed to <laughs> work because you're like but i like the monster i don't right. want to get rid of the ocd monster and i was right. like uh oh i got yeah. i gotta figure my way around that though yeah. so it can backfire but just like everything else could backfire but right. but uh that was one funny story that i had um, I think, you know, just I think too, there's a lot yeah. of flexibility in metaphors. And so you can, you could, like, to me, what you just said, I would, I would probably think I'd spin that into, well, mm -hmm. if this monster for Monster Inc. is friendly, how do we take your OCD monster and make him more like the, how does he get to join in with the guys and, and, and girls from Monsters Inc.? How do we make him part of that team, so to speak? And you can, 
you can move the beauty of it. I think to me is you can move around them a lot, even if you have just a a basic. It's a bit like improv, I guess, where you have a basic story, and then you have a lot of ways that you can wiggle around depending on which one you're using and who the person in the room is. So a framework is there, but there's a million ways you can go. So to me, there's not really a wrong answer with them. You can you can as long as you're sort of quick. It, it challenges you to be a little quick on your feet and think, okay, well, how do I turn it in a way that I wasn't expecting? But there's often a lot of richness in them that you can really, you can really sort of shape them depending on on what your goal and mission is. Even if it's a standard metaphor like introducing cognitive restructuring or or a character from from a from a movie or from a television show or in, in somewhere in pop culture. That's what I love about it. It 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 encourages the therapist to also be a little bit nimble and think, how do I take this and turn it for this person who it didn't go this way, but how do I turn it into that way? Mm. Where, where were you think. six years ago when I needed you? That <laughs> 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 could have been so useful. It's easy to say on a podcast. I found that put me in the room and see how. I do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, one thing that I love that Judy Beck always says is that she says, "I hope I'm a better therapist five years than I am today," uh, and I hope I'm a better therapist than I was five years ago, and I hope I'm a better therapist than five years today because we're always um, we're always learning. Uh, d- does anybody else have have thought about? Uh, using pop culture and metaphor as being a safer place for people to go into as maybe maybe a starting point or an example of how you used it for that? I agree with that for sure. I think what can sometimes happen is that people have a hard time naming their experience, especially if it feels like a dangerous one. So for instance, in the experience of trauma, let's say, it can feel really difficult, obviously, to approach that experience and those emotions associated with it. And if you can use a film, TV, whatever it might be, then it allows that patient to see sort of from outside of themselves. You know, we're talking here a lot about externalizing. It sort of reminds me a lot of diffusion from acceptance and commitment therapy. And what I think is really helpful is people, it kind of serves as like a little bit of a mirror for people. Um, Chris and I have talked about this like a thousand times. I, I dare you guys to count how many times I talk about Encanto on this podcast episode. Um, Encanto was this beautiful film that I think did a lot of people, especially for groups of people that are typically not well represented in pop culture. And I had a couple of people, particularly people of color with intergenerational trauma, say, holy cow, I saw myself in a character and I saw things in myself I would have never been able to notice. I saw myself in Mirabelle or Louisa or whoever. And it again, it gave them that sense of um, reflection, really, to be able to take a glance at those types of things that they couldn't name and that they couldn't necessarily identify and that felt dangerous. And if they can see it from outside of themselves, then they can start to develop the language that they might need to be able to describe their experience and then ever so slowly or maybe not so slowly approach that content, approach that topic and start to name those emotions for themselves. And I think that can be really powerful. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm just spitballing here because this is the most that I've been thinking about metaphor in, in a while. But I, I was also just thinking in my head, um, may, maybe using these metaphors to also get to bring people to a more extreme place on a concept than what we could do in the real world. Right, because th- this is a fictional thing, and something terrible happens, like a whole planet blows up. Um, y- you know, and, and f- you know, Earth hasn't blown up, and fingers crossed it doesn't happen. Uh, but what what does it feel like to lose your your whole home planet, and what must that feel like? And I'm thinking about Spock in the new Star Trek movie; his whole planet got blown up. You know, so it allows us to maybe interact with concepts 
uh, in, a, in a much more extreme way for us to make more sense of it and process it in a different way. Um, do you guys find it operating like that in the work that you might be doing? And I know, Jason, you said that you were a uh, sci-fi guy, so uh, maybe you find that happening in, in your work more often? I... I think that's a, that's a great point. I'm I'm not sure if I have, but now I'm thinking about it. And you know, for a while there, uh, Walking Dead was really was really uh, popular. Great example. It was a fun thing to you know gather around the water cooler and talk about you know how like you would come up with a strategy if um, you know if there was a zombie outbreak and where would you go? Who would you team up with? What would your favorite weapon be? And um, you know, or during Game of Thrones, like what, uh, you know, what moves would you be making? Um, so I think, I think uh, in in everyday life, that is um, uh, something really interesting to think about. Uh, and I even read an article that during the beginning of the pandemic, people were uh, like, there was a big rise in either Walking Dead or just regular horror movies. And that was a way for people to cope. Um, so I think uh, I think people are doing that. And then now I'm thinking about it more and thinking that's definitely something to, to tap into. But uh, so far I haven't, but that's that's a great idea. And I want to start, start doing that now. Well, I, I know what The Walking Dead for me, um, I, I used to watch it uh, before the pandemic, but I remember it got me thinking a lot about like, what is the meaning of life? Like, wh what's the point? So if I was in this situation where I was being constantly trying, people trying to eat me, and then the other humans are always trying to kill me, and I'm right, like, would I want to have children in, in, in that type of world? Uh, what would make me happy? Could I possibly be happy? And it, it was, I'm glad you brought up that example, because I reflected about myself through watching The Walking Dead. I think it brings up, uh, I, oh, sorry. I, I was gonna say, I think it brings up a good point about just like uh, values. Like I'm thinking in like a behavioral activation or act sort of framework of like, you know, strip away all the luxuries of the world. Like what is it that you truly value in life and how do you make that happen even in the midst of like chaos? going on. And I, and I think, you know, being now in a global pandemic for over two years, there's been a lot of chaos and extra burden of stress and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how do we walk in this world that uh, is throwing us curveballs every day and, and trying to kind of manage in that and still be able to get value out of what we're doing. And maybe some of these more apocalyptic type of, of TV shows or movies can help us think about it in a different way. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's why superheroes are so appealing, right? Cause I mean, they all have an origin story and they've seen some stuff, right. And it's, it's usually born in adversity of some, you know, uh, hor often horrible magnitude. And, and I think that's so applicable. And, and if we think about, you know, resilience and, and sort of part of the story that we try to teach uh, often, and especially, I mean, from my lens, kids, right? Um, it's what are the ingredients of resilience is sort of how do we learn how to cope uh, with the adversity? And, and we've had adversity in spades and that 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 model. So when and, and think the, the nice part about superheroes, I think now is that they're everywhere, right? It's TV shows, it's movies, it's, you know, uh, cartoons, it's clothes and it's so readily available from a very young age, you know, there are the kids who don't take off their Spider-Man costumes, you know, or, or jammies or what have you. 
And um, I think it, it offers us a nice way to, to, to talk about these bigger topics, trauma, uh, adversity, pandemics, uh, I don't know about zombies, but maybe, I mean, you know, <laughs> locusts, so what's coming next? Uh, and think about how, you know, the process by which we adapt, you know, to that, uh, which is, you know, I think part of the definition of, of resilience. Uh, Simon, I saw you rearing up to say something. So what, what was on your mind? I mean, I agree with Sandy's point. I, I, mine was much more concrete. I was going to say, if you have a patient identifying with Negan who has a bat named Lucille, it's going to tell you a lot of stuff right away that you that, that will probably be helpful in therapy and in reporting. And I, so you can use it on a concrete level too. But I, I love the idea, like even in Walking Dead or even in Game of Thrones, like I imagine like the Battle of the Bastard scene where where you you've got a person standing up. The, looking at, a, at an army of people coming towards them, and it, it, it sends them, you can identify moments in all of these, even apocalyptic films, when when people take a stand and people show courage. And even if, back to, back to what Jess was saying, even if the outcome doesn't always end up joyous, you can still demonstrate qualities that you, or highlight qualities and characters that for kids or adults, you, they can grab onto and, and give themselves Hope. An example I was going to use is it's dated now. You have to also be careful with some of these because it changes so fast. But I love to use the, the George Costanza from Seinfeld and, and the episode where he acts opposite to every all of his instincts. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's a great example of exposure. Yeah. Your instincts, your whole life have told you to go this way and look where it's gotten you. So what what would happen if just you decide on a dime to say, here's how I'm going to do things today? And in that episode, which is a classic in the Seinfeld series, is all these good things start to happen when he goes against his impulses. And you can you can use those examples of characters, even if they're flawed, and show is usually an episode where even flawed characters and shows have a success. And so I, I love that idea of, of finding, as Andy said, resiliency and and lessons of coping that that almost everyone can find in a character. Oh, yeah, talk about feeling dated. I did a training uh, a couple of days ago for our incoming interns and externs. And I have a slide and I keep this slide to remind me of my age primarily. And it made a who's the boss Tony Danza reference. And <laughs> this was the first year that not a one knew the reference. And I was I was referencing, Aww. I know who, you know, in terms of when we do parent child uh, intakes as part of the ADIS semi-structured, like who's the boss? And so I thought that was very clever. And nothing. I got nothing from them. So this was the year that who's the boss is no longer relevant. I'm I so mentioned Fraggle I had that Rock with the Ferris other day. Bueller. I made a oh, Bueller Ferris comment Bueller. and no one got it. I was like, guys, get on it. <laughs> so who's the boss? Ferris Bueller, Fraggle Rock. I, I, did anybody else watch Fraggle Rock? Was <laughs> oh, I the yeah. only one? I love Fraggle <laughs> I love Rock. Fraggle Nobody Rock. knows Fraggle Rock anymore. Uh, but they, but they always had something interesting to teach you. Um, I watched it as an adult and I was like, wow, I must've learned a lot from these people. Um, a, a comment that a few of you guys said was values and somebody might've said morals and I'm going to throw in the word ethics, uh, and I'm going to bring up a Star Trek, the next, I told you I'm a sci-fi guy, Star Trek, the next generation episode. Um, there, there was a planet where they went to, and when somebody I think was above the age of 65, um, they would go into a room and they would very painlessly self-terminate in order to reduce the burden of the economic cost of having to um, ca uh, care for the elderly. And so I think Star Trek really put to the front, right? That was an extreme metaphor there, right? 
about how do we consider the elderly elderly in our society? Uh, how do we care for them? Um, like, uh, what is the value and what does that mean? Um, so how much do you find that, that stuck with me? I remember watching that. Um, I, I think I was in high school when I watched that episode and I, I remember it was just an, such an eye opening, um, episode for me and it's still stuck with me. And this is the first time I thought about it in a while, how much do you guys find yourself using the moral quandaries in these things, whether it be trashy reality TV? Well, let's not put trashy on it. I don't want to be judgmental. No, no judgment, Joe, safe space, reality TV, uh, sci-fi comedy, even what people in sports are doing, using examples from pop culture and all that to help people reflect, to realize what they think about it and what lessons that they can learn. It's so interesting you say that because a couple of years ago I did an exercise with someone and I said, can you write a little sort of short statement, essay type thing about what kind of person you want to be in your life? And this person said Don Draper. And I found oh. that very interesting. And that was a really interesting <laughs> way for us to explore the complexities of Don Draper and what it was that appealed to this person about Don Draper. Um, and it's, I think, sometimes interesting when people do connect with characters that maybe um, culture, film, TV paint in flawed ways or nuanced ways or complex ways and to get a sense of what those values are, you know, back to values and to explore some of those pieces that might be of interest to the person or aligned or maybe misaligned or maybe are conflicts in that individual and to be able to unpack those conflicts and sort of explore from there. And I think that, you know, that is a really fascinating thing to do. I think a, a much more serious version of this in which I found people finding ways to talk about ethics and um, morals and things like that, obviously this is heavy given everything that's happening right now, is to think about The Handmaid's Tale. And I've had a lot of people use that as an avenue to talk about their frustration with what's happening in society and their fears for the future and things like that. And so people, I think, being able to see things on their screens and connect with it and sometimes connect with it in a bad way, right, with this sense of intense fear and worry and things of this nature gives people a little bit of language, again, back to that idea of new language, um, to explain or explore the nuances of the, the you know, moral dilemmas that they're experiencing or that they're witnessing. Um, and that can be tough. You know, I, I, not as much anymore, but I used to do a ton of work with um, military veterans and we would, me and my veterans, depending on who it was and what era they were, um, I would, you know, watch a lot of war films with them and use that to explore things like moral injury and obviously trauma and things like that and combat trauma. And it was really fascinating to see people explore what their experiences were as they're watching things like Full Metal Jacket or Apocalypse Now or those types of things and to explore the, the difficulties that they experienced in the world in terms of a moral or ethical dilemma that they um, feel complicated about, shall we say. So I think there's a lot of room for it. Um, so I have oh, sorry, um, Go gone on podcasts um, and, and talked about things like that. Uh, a few years ago, I went on a, a podcast related to Star Trek. Um, 
Uh, it's called yes. uh, Strange New Worlds. They have science uh, scientists and other researchers on the podcast talking about the science behind what the things that you see on that show. And I was there to talk about psychology and, and sports psychology. And uh, I apologize to people who have never seen Star Trek, but I was I was talking about uh, Captain Picard and his experience with um, something called the Borg. Uh, these kind of um, zombie type aliens that assimilate um, other life forms, just take them over and steal their individuality and and force them into a hive mind and take away their free will and that kind of thing. And I was talking about how um, Picard was assimilated and then he regained his his freedom and you know, was going through this process of you know dealing with that trauma of just completely losing himself and losing um, um, any individuality that he had and um, any ability to make his own decisions or take his, his own actions. And, um, and this was the backdrop of, you know, some, a, a movie, a Star Trek movie called first contact where he had all of this trauma and then needed to face that enemy again. And, um, that can be very similar to what athletes go through sometimes where, you know, in an ideal situation, you would be in a very safe environment and, you know, you would play uh, a game and you would have referees that were fair and everybody would respect each other and, and just enjoy the game. Uh, but in reality, uh, athletes are often... Um, oppressed outside of that game uh maybe they're devalued by society because they are part of a marginalized uh community uh maybe maybe it's wartime and then they're representing their country or their community uh, even though a, a war is going on um or maybe they um uh, come from a, a low-income uh, neighborhood and are struggling in that way and then need to put all that to the side and then compete in their sport. Um, so this is just to say that uh, athletes often deal with trauma and other mental health issues and then need to be able to cope with that, uh, put that to the side and, and focus on their task anyway. And um, I was using uh, what happened in the Star Trek TV show and, and movies to uh, to illustrate that um so that can like i would love to do that more in therapy um but uh, i enjoy going on podcasts and, and doing that and i think um that's great for um uh for people learning who, who are just listening to it and then i've also gone on clubhouse that's kind of a similar uh situation to going on a podcast and then talked about things like that and it does uh, seem to really illustrate the point for people and they can they can draw connections between tv or movies and these real life um uh occurrences um so we've been spending a lot of time like talking about the the positives that pop culture and sci-fi and, and the stuff could, could give us but sometimes people get the wrong lessons from learning things or bad lessons right it, it was what was taught but it wasn't particularly helpful um how do we help people get the correct lessons and i'm thinking about don draper's what triggered this in my head about you know how do we get to help people get the right lessons um and when we talk about things prevent them from jumping into spaces that might not be so healthy that they get from these these shows I think with this, it's really just important to have a really open conversation and, and use the metaphors as a, a conversation starter and to be able to kind of like talk about 
the, these things as being imperfect too. They're not, they're not created by us. They're created elsewhere. And so they're not always going to exactly fit um, what we want them to look like. I think um, one that comes to mind for me is I think a really powerful, but also imperfect metaphor from WandaVision. Um, I do a lot of work, work in grief and it's not also something that I think a lot of people are aware that like prolonged grief can actually be a mental health condition. It's come into the, it has come to the DSM-5 uh, TR, so it is in there now. Um, but there's a scene where Vision says to Wanda, but what is grief if not love persevering? And, um, and really what we're seeing in what Wanda is doing is a lot of similar symptoms that we might see, you know, of somebody in prolonged grief disorder. However, you can also interpret this in a negative way too, right? Because we're seeing her in some ways being a villain, right? She's like controlling the minds of all these people in the, in the city. And that's not a, a perfect way to kind of interact with your grief. So I think it's really important to, to kind of highlight the pieces that fit and, and, um, and talk through those, but also acknowledge the pieces that don't and, um, and and talk about that too. Because I do think a lot of people with their grief too will, will also feel this, will feel like they're a burden to people around them or they're doing something incorrectly. So even though like things don't appear to be kind of the, maybe the best, so to speak, in quotes metaphor, there it can be a good conversation starter and in a way to really hone in on important and, um, and sometimes challenging concepts. I think, too, what can be really cool is you can use it in a process or meta way. So if you deliver a metaphor that didn't land the way that you wanted it to, or it was interpreted in a way that you think might actually be more harmful to the conversation that you're having, it can actually be a great opportunity to explore cognitive flexibility around the use of that metaphor and to model it. And you as the therapist can actually either explicitly or implicitly show that there's a way to change the way that you describe the metaphor or use the metaphor and also use that as an opportunity to help your, your patient explore their own cognitive flexibility around the metaphor. So it can actually wind up being this very meta process that can be really cool and demonstrating cognitive flexibility. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing in uh, to bringing it back to sports. And that's why I love sports, because really professional sports and uh, sports in general, but professional sports on display is really about failure. So here are people getting paid a lot of money, many of them heroes to many, uh, some great athletes, maybe less great off the field and, you know, sort of using sort of the story of the athlete as well as their performance. So if we think about, you know, obviously baseball percentages, baseball tends to be my go-to along with basketball and some others, but I think it applies across the board where we look at, uh, you know, the, the story behind someone performing well and what they get paid for and how often they actually fail. Um, you know, we, the famous quote of Michael Jordan, I have it framed behind me, given to me by a trainee because it, it speaks so well to how many times uh, he succeeded relative to his failure and he failed way, way more than he, than he succeeded. And that's one thing. The other contract, I love the construct of the productive out in baseball. So there are times that you go up to bat 
and don't get on base, but there's stuff that you can do in order to advance, uh, whether it's your values or whether it's a goal that you can, or something that's your team. And I, I find that a lot of these constructs can be applied sort of in the same way of that of that cognitive flexibility. It's not this all or none, but there's a way to to sort of think about having that productive out or, or some way of, of uh, reframing. One of my favorite, my favorite philosopher of all time is Yogi Berra. And one of his, fav- one of my, one of his famous quotes um, uh, you know, again, sort of what's all about reframing uh, such a powerful cognitive tool is like a reporter asked him about being in a slump and he's like, slump, I ain't in no slump. I just ain't hitting. Right. So if that's not <laughs> brilliant, right. So thinking about how we, we sort of have these models and then also thinking about how we can reframe sort of the failures, uh, uh as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think a lot of athletes like Michael, like Michael Jordan, right. He didn't make his, um, high school basketball team at first. I see, yeah. I know something about sports yeah. and then, uh, you know, LeBron James practices like crazy. So yeah. these people that are really great and like, yeah, they have some pre innate talent like me. I can't jump more than three inches off the, off, off the floor. So my NBA career ended before it started. Um, but we, it can be used to help role model, um, that hard, like, like, for example, that hard work is also part of, of succeeding, not just having raw, like raw ability may not be enough, like themes like this. And any of you sports people might have more to say on that than compared to what I could say on that. I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that you said and Sandy said, and I, if you think about any sport, but you have, you have hundreds of players and hundreds of support people working with them on the teams. And there's only one winner per year. Everyone else goes into the year knowing they're going to work as hard as they can, put their, their mind and body through tremendous strain and stress, have a whole off season of trying to get ready. And then they play a season knowing at the end of it, there's only going to be one winner. Hmm. That's committing to process. And, and outcome is, is great, but that's that's showing a, there's a lot in that for people that to to take and to apply in their lives. And that what, how do you measure what success is? How do you measure what winning is about? And, and there's a lot of lessons to be derived from that concept. And so there's a there's a there's a lot of ways you can play with that as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I really agree with uh, everything that's just been said. Uh, Going back to baseball, that's that's another um, uh, great uh, metaphor. Like, you know, uh, the best uh, hitters might only get on base about thirty percent of the time, and that can be applied to lots of situations. If somebody has been applying for jobs and they feel like no one is giving them a second thought, uh, that can be very discouraging. But then if you think about maybe some of their favorite athletes or or if they are interested in baseball, you know, you can do every single thing right and then only have success 30% of the time and and you're considered one of the best. And that can really help uh, motivate people to uh, keep kind of uh, – Keep grinding away and, uh, and focusing on the process for whatever whatever their goal is. And then I'll just add that just like uh, just like Jason, uh, I actually don't watch that much sports, <laughs> which surprises a lot of people. Uh, I I love uh, working with athletes. I love being involved with a team. And um, I'm a, I'm a washed up uh, has been athlete now, but I used to love you know 
competing and I'm, I'm getting back to being more active. But when it comes to actually, you know, watching a five hour event or putting on Star Trek or something like that, I, I go <laughs> I go to Star Trek or to something else. Uh, so I'm just 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 letting people know. Um it, it, an interesting just antidote. I, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Jimmy Chin. He uh, filmed um, Free Solo. Did you guys see Free Solo about the guy who climbs El Capitan with no ropes on? The uh, scariest right. thing I've ever yeah. seen. Oh, uh, <laughs> if, if I had a phobia, it would be in heights. And I saw an IMAX and my palms were sweating. And I never get sweaty palms. It, it was... It, it, I, I've watched it multiple times. Well, I, I um, met him in a, in a small group. He was talking about one of the books that he wrote, and he was talking about how it was uh, anxiety-provoking, putting the book together and this, that, and the other. And I rose my hand, and I said, yeah, I can imagine being terrifying, putting all your failures in a book. Like, how did you handle that? And he kind of looked at me like I was odd. And, and he's like, well, I'm a mountain climber. Like, I climb, I'm a rock climber. We fail by nature. Like, like I brought up as, as a teen trying to climb up a mountain and failing and then trying again and again and again. And when you do this sort of thing, you get very, very, very comfortable with failure. Um, and, and I absolutely love that. Um, and then I also think about team sports. I played football from seventh grade through 12th grade. Um, and learning to work as a team and having a goal that was above the individual player. And, and um, there was something very educational about having that experience. Um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with either of these. They just came up and I felt like it was important to say, I'm not sure how that would translate into therapy, but there are times where, where I do recommend and I'll ask kids if they're interested in joining some sort of team sport for the lessons that they can learn or even martial arts. Um, if they're willing to do it with this idea of doing something hard and not being good at it and failing and persistent and persisting and having discomfort and learning the ability to be disciplined and get through it anyway. Um, so I'm not sure this is getting outside of metaphor, but I'm not sure how much you guys use sport itself as a therapeutic tool. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm taking like a left turn here, but. Sorry, I'm still stuck on thinking about failure and mountain climbing and thinking about free solo and that how <laughs> maybe there is not a great um, return rate on failure in that type oh, of climbing. Oh, not, not that way. Well, J Jimmy was the, you know, filming him yeah. and he was on a rope and he was climbing. So, yeah, so we, we don't want to quite have a metaphor. Don't, don't climb ropes without ropes. Kids. My That's palms are getting idea. sweaty thinking about that. <laughs> Maybe there's a fine line between exposure and impulsivity that uh, people might want to be mindful of. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I was I was kind of listening to what you're saying and thinking about well, maybe it's a it's regardless of of what you use it's a it's a it calls into question to me like what do you how do we define what failure is mm -hmm. right and and is in sport I was thinking I started to think about well what about in music or in art right you put your you put your heart and soul into producing a, a work of art, be it a song or a poem or a painting or a sculpture, and or a podcast, or a podcast, <laughs> yeah. And you're and you, and you're going to put it out there, and including us in that process. And then ever you could be up there, and and you could see all these thumbs down, and you suck, and and what you, Jason, and you, everyone who was on this podcast sucks. And what are you talking about? And is that a failure, or is it, or it, it's up to us to decide? What's gonna, what we're committing to here and not getting up a particular cliff or not getting a particular song hit number one or not winning a championship or not batting a, 
a four for four on a night is is very select ways to measure that. And if you if you start to use that as your entry point, it, be, it can become very broad in terms of how we define terms that we use for ourselves, for example. And and then you can iterate using almost any career or in any profession as to how we become very concrete in our mind about what a success is, even though that's just arbitrary, getting back to what Jeff said about language and, and diffusing from terms that we use. So that was my reaction to what you were saying. I think all of what you said could be used very well with people as a, as a metaphor for success or failure, for example. Hmm. That just got me thinking, and one of my patients actually brought this up recently because she went to Europe and went to an art museum about Vincent Van Gogh. I wrote a play about in third grade, no big deal. Um, but, um, but he he didn't sell a single painting when he was alive. And yet now he is one of the most famous artists and everybody knows his name. And so I think that's uh, another way, I mean, pop culture, culture in general, right? Um, that we can uh, bring in the, these references and have a conversation about it. Yeah, and I think now more than ever we see, I mean, if we're sticking with athletes or others, there's this intersection of, of them as athletes and them in real life. We just saw yesterday Simone Biles and uh, Megan Rapinoe, you know, getting the presidential medals. And um, and that's meaningful, you know, on multiple levels, right? So destigmatizing issues in mental health, promoting pay equity and, uh, you know, marginalized communities and, and uh, you know, their causes. And so I think, you know, having the availability of, of whether, in this case, we're talking about athletes, you know, Simone Biles withdrew from competition. Many of, uh, many people sort of vilified her for that. And, and when in fact, you know, she was promoting mental health, the very thing that we're talking about. And here yesterday, she just got the presidential, the youngest person, not only an athlete, but to get the presidential medal you know, a freedom or, or Megan Rapinoe also vilified by the president of the United States, um, as it was to, for, you know, a, a host of things and speaking out. And then also, you know, uh, she, she and the team and, and many of the women in women's soccer promoting pay equity and, and, um, you know, sort of promoting causes. So I think using, I think now more than ever, there's so much crisscross, uh, that we see certainly with social media, whether it's athletes or politicians or movie stars or you know you know other other folks that can serve as for better or worse as we're saying sort of some of these some of these models that we can look to. Hmm. Yeah, I wanted to add something real quick. I, I'm, I'm sure we're getting short on time, but uh, there was a pioneer in sports psychology named Ken Revisa, and he worked with tons of pro ball players and tons of great uh, Division One uh, NCAA players, uh, and. Uh, they would always tell him, you know, after their time uh, in baseball was up, that um, the stuff that he taught them helped them way more in their everyday life than it ever did in um, in baseball. Just helping them deal with family issues, with work stress, with you know, overcoming whatever obstacles come in their way. So uh, this stuff can really help people, not just in their sport, but in, in their life. Um, and I, I often work with athletes, but a lot of times I work with people who aren't necessarily athletes, but have a sport or some kind of um, activity that they enjoy. And maybe they have panic attacks, maybe they have OCD, maybe they feel overwhelmed and like they're never going to get better. But then, you know, we can talk about, you know, how they felt when they first started learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or how they felt when they first started learning their sport. And, you know, how and remember when, um, you know, everything felt really hard and like you didn't know what you were doing 
and uh, people kept tapping you out or, you know, you felt like you were never going to get better at the sport, but then you stuck it out. You kept practicing little by little. You gained more and more skill. And now you are where you are now. And we can kind of, we can think of um, ERP or we could think of, you know, whatever type of treatment or whatever issue you're addressing in that same way. Right now it feels like this is impossible to handle, um, you know, the, the skills that I'm learning maybe they're not, it feels like they're not doing anything, but slow, consistent um, work over time will show those benefits. And, and, you know, um, in a a couple months from now, and, you know, a couple more months in a year, you're going to feel much, much better if you keep on focusing on the process and keep, keep putting the work in. Okay. So before we wrap up today's wonderful episode, do maybe I'll just go through every single person and what final thoughts you might have that we didn't cover today that you think is relevant um, to talk about metaphor. Uh, and I think one thing, if anybody wants to hit on that we didn't talk about is, well, we, we talked about why do it, but we didn't talk about how to do it. Uh, so if anybody has any thoughts on like, well, how do you actually do this in a therapy session for therapists. I think that would be kind of cool too. Uh, Jessica, you're number one on my screen, so I'm going to uh, pick on you first again. Sure. So if I can take a slightly different route than the how to do it, if I can make a pitch um, for one other place or one other series of places to use metaphor, we've been talking a lot about therapy specifically here, but it can also be used in other ways to disseminate information. Um, So, you know, I do a lot of media, like I mentioned earlier, Dr. Radio, talk to a lot of reporters, things like that. Um, And I love using metaphors and pop culture in talking to all of these different people about mental health because what's happening is it's such a large scale of dissemination of information about mental health that's reaching so many people, including many people that don't know much about mental health. And so you really want to make sure that you're sharing that information on a level that is as easily digestible as possible to the broadest scope of people. And what I think is really cool is when someone's reading a magazine article or something like that or seeing, you know, a psychologist on New York One or NBC or whatever it might be is they want it snappy, they want it quick, they want it digestible. And to be able to hook people into the knowledge of what CBT and other types of um, psychotherapies are is can be really powerful. And I think that's where metaphors and pop culture can be extra, you know, useful because you can get a lot of information in a short span of time and really wet people's palate to this concept of how to engage with mental health in a way that doesn't feel so scary. And so um, if there's anyone out there who is a, a therapist, a mental health provider, or just a, a healthcare professional in general who's looking for a way to disseminate information, sharing this kind of information um, in the, you know, in the press world can be a super cool way to do it. Okay. Uh, next on my screen is, is uh, Sandra. Yeah, I, I'll, um, I'll speak a little to the how and a little to the why, I guess. So I think, I think the how is related to what we were talking about before. I think part of it is doing what we naturally love as people, um, as the people we are in addition to the therapists, uh, whether it's TV shows or sports or, or whatever we tend to get drawn to. And then there's the intentional, right? So if we see, if I see a teenager walking in and they're wearing a shirt of a certain performer or anime or something, they're giving us information about them and, and it's all usable <laughs> in terms of a behavioral observation of what we can use. And so sometimes that will align with some of the things that I already know. And other times I'll, I'll seek it out if I'm looking to connect or ask about it or think about ways to, to include it. 
Um, and so I think thinking sort of uh, with intention sometimes about how we can bring it in. Certainly, you know, in working with kids and, and teenagers, kind of like like I said uh, before. The other, and I guess it's related, the why is like people like Lizzo and Beyonce are amazing. They are a wealth of resources that have one, I think, uh, you know, I use Beyonce uh, and, and stuff. We have a Beyonce scale and you know, it's a confidence rating for teenagers <laughs> brought up by a teen that was in my social anxiety group. And she wanted to increase her Beyonce confidence ratings. I'm like, okay, me too. Like, let's do it. And so that was on a scale of zero to Beyonce, how confident do you feel? Right. And so like, that's a way of communicating, uh, like I think Kristen, you said before, a common language, right. Of, of, of making us relatable. And, and I think in really good ways, if we find the right, people. And I'll, I'll close with this. You know, I'm a reluctant Twitter user for the record. And uh, I saw a tweet from Cardi B and C Cardi B said, tweeted, anxiety is kicking my ass right now. Like, you know, if Cardi B is talking openly about her anxiety, that's a win, right? And that's exactly what we want. And Cardi B, um, you know, for, for all that, you know, she is and that she, she does. The other thing, there were these re replies uh, and someone said, well, that's what weed is for. And then she replied and said, no, no, that makes me more anxious. So now if I, old psychology lady say that, I'm like, well, ah, boring, right? Uh, but if Cardi B gives that psychoeducation and says, well, you might want to be careful with that because, you know, the weed might make you more anxious. It's incredibly powerful. So I think if we find these different either messengers or stories, I think that's the why. I think they can be incredibly powerful messengers for the stuff that we're trying to convey. Okay, Jason, final thoughts? Let's see. Um, well, as far as the how, um, a lot of times I just kind of draw from them, and it can be a great way to build rapport. Um, I have, I've had clients who maybe, maybe they're an adolescent and maybe they're not excited about opening up, but then I can ask them about gaming. You know, uh, I can ask them about their favorite YouTubers or uh, now it might be TikTokers. Um, and they usually have someone that, that they admire. And then I just start asking them questions about them. Um, or if, if the client's into anime or gaming or League of Legends, I start asking, you know, how do you get good at that? How do you, how do you, um, uh, uh, perform well as a team with your friends because a lot of it is online gaming together with a group uh, and then and then they can get excited about it and start start talking about uh, something that they feel really passionate about and it could also be a way to kind of cool down after an especially intense exposure you know when somebody's at a, at a 10 out of 10 and feeling really you know jittery I can just ask them, hey, you know, do you have any good movies you're going to watch this weekend? And then we can just start talking about that for a second. And maybe that segues into a great metaphor, maybe not. But it can help people really cool down um, when they're feeling on edge. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, and, and I'll just say the, the last thing, uh, uh, maybe this gets into the why. Uh, for me, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's so much fun. Uh, I like watching movies. I like talking about movies. I get to bring that enjoyment into the session and clients um, most of the time will really enjoy it. Um, so that, that's just something else to think about. It's, it's, it's fun. 
Um, Bob Leahy, who's a, who's a bit of a mentor to me, always talks about when he, when he said this in the context of couples counseling, that oftentimes people have the skills in other parts of their lives, and then they just need to remember to translate it over. Like, how would you handle this disagreement if it was with your boss? Okay, well, can we do that instead of yelling at your husband, wife, or something like that? How, how can you can you do it like that and translate it over? And I think that's very much what you were saying, is that sometimes people are already doing these great things in their life and have these great behaviors and skills, and they just don't realize uh, how it connects and how they can pull it over there. So I think that's very cool. Um, uh, Chris, my, my first question to you is, how do we get to watch this Van Gogh uh, play that you made? Is it on YouTube? Can you reenact it for us? <laughs> it is It is definitely on video in my parents' basement somewhere. I'm, I'm calling them up. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get them to put it on YouTube someday. <laughs> I watched it, I, I rewatched it, and I was like, oh man, that was just a bunch of kids saying facts about Van Gogh. <laughs> Um, it wasn't, it wasn't the most, uh, moving or riveting piece, <laughs> but I will say, um, in my kind of final thoughts here, uh, in the, in the how, just piggybacking on what Jason was saying, I, I think in my assessments, I like to, I know we talk a lot about, you know, what's going wrong, um, when we're doing an assessment with a new patient, but I like to always end it with, you know, what's going right. Um, so what are, their strengths and also what are their interests and things they like to do. And I think it's uh, sometimes jarring for patients to be like, oh, why are you asking me about these things? But it's also kind of a way to start that type of conversation and start to bank some ideas of things that might be useful kind of moving into the therapy space. And I think, um, you know, speaking of things being on YouTube, bringing it alive in the therapy session. I love to play YouTube videos um, with my patients. Um, and most of these things you can find in a nice little clip on YouTube if you look for it. So I think uh, that's a great way to just watch together and then to start a conversation without me having to be the one to, to bring it up. Um, and I think also saying what, what I think a lot of us have been saying, it's just fun. And don't be afraid to have fun in therapy. I think, you know, we sometimes think, you know, this has to be a very serious matter. But um, being fun then attaches a different type of emotion to the content that we're talking about, a different meaning. And then also sometimes, I, and I think many of my patients have said this to me, then they have conversations about it with their family, with their friends. Guess what I learned in therapy today? And you know what's good about that? Repetition. Now they're going to remember it more because they're talking about it. So um, it doesn't have to be stuffy. It can be fun too. What's more powerful than fun and effective? I, I don't know. I think that's as good as it gets. Um, so Simon, I'm very happy that I got randomly sat next to you a few years ago at a table. I think it was at, uh, at the Beck, Beck Summit. Um, number one, because I got to know you throughout the years, but also you have introduced me to this very impressive and knowledgeable panel. And I'm very thankful for all of you guys uh, coming on today. Um, so Simon, uh, what are the last thoughts that you have for, for this episode? Well, first I'll just say thank you. It was it was a real treat, and I appreciate uh, so much meeting you at that that excellent summit years ago as well. And I'm so glad and so proud of what you're doing with your podcast. I, I looked at your lineup, and you've had some amazing topics and speakers come on since you launched it. And so kudos to you for for putting this material out there. And people should check out your entire library of podcasts because there's some really Bob Lee being the last one prior to us, but there's a whole host of people that are doing some really 
interesting and, and, and important work in our field. So kudos to you for that. And I appreciate that. I'll be very pragmatic about the how. The, there's a literature on the how. And, <laughs> and I think Kristen and I joined on because her mentor at BU wrote a paper in 2000. Yeah. On, on Michael Otto wrote a paper in 2000, Cognitive and Behavioral Practice, on using metaphors in CBT, which was taken from his protocol on CBT for benzodiazepine withdrawal or tapering, right, for panic, yes. I think. And, and that was the first paper that I thought really summarized it so well with examples that you can use at different points in therapy. And since then, 22 years ago, there's been a whole host of papers published on different applications of CBT, of metaphors and CBT and other forms of therapy. Our, our friends in the ACBS world, the Association for Contextual Behavior Science, published the big book of ACT metaphors you can buy, and that'll start you off with a whole bunch. And there's a, there's a group out of Oxford that has the, the use of metaphors and CBT that they published. And then there's another similar book on stories and analogies in CBT, and they're loaded with examples and rationale and theory and a bit of the empirical evidence behind them. So if people are struggling with how to start, you don't have to, you don't have to go quite so far and take a chance on your own. You can, you can read a little bit about it and figure out which ones to start with. And from, from traditional metaphors that are used to explain the cognitive model or other aspects to I, to using using pop culture metaphors or superheroes in therapy, so there's so there's a whole literature out there that people could turn to, and, and the whys. I'll, I think I started with that, and it's it's it really is a a, a challenge and an, and an exciting way of bringing the art to the science of how do you take a concept and make it memorable to a, a patient and have them come back as as Kristen alluded to and say, oh, I remember this and I, this made me laugh or this surprised me or him and tell was was quoting Cardi B again or <laughs> and uh, I think that's I think that's those are the memories that, that I remember as a trainee. I just did a, a little video snippet for Jack Rackman who passed away in the past year who was a real legend in the field and at the fiftieth annual British Association of Cognitive Behavioral Therapies conference they're gonna show a video montage of people commenting on the impact he had. And the, the snippet that I used for myself was remembering him bringing humor into the sessions with the OCD patients that he invited me to do co-therapy and watch him. And really severe OCD patients, he found a way to weave humor into the exposures. And I was shocked as a graduate student saying, you can, you can do that? And in fact, I think you needed that to break the frame of the anxiety and the grip that fear had on people. And then people could do the work that was necessary. So that's the why. It allows you to, to be a little bit more free hmm. while still adhering to principles that I think are so important in the evidence-based treatments that we use. Yeah, um, and we, we have quite a few grad students that listen to this podcast, and I think that's a really good uh, moral for, for people to take off starting off, because I know when I first got started, I was as stiff as a board. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a valuable point. Uh, so before we sign out, I, I should have had you guys do this when you guys were um, uh, saying your last points. But if anybody wants to follow you on Twitter, Instagram, if there's a web page, I'm just going to go through just so you could tell people that and then we will sign off today. So Jessica, how can people uh, follow you and, and learn about what you're doing? 
Sure. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And my handle at both is at Dr. Jessica B, B as in boy, Stern. And um, you can also find me on my website, uh, drjessicabstern.com or on the NYU Lingo and Health website. Okay. Uh, Sandra, over to you. Um, Twitter is probably the best way to find me, at Sandra Pym, PhD. Um, that's on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn, which is less fun, but I'm there too. And if not, you can catch me at Yankee Stadium uh, until hopefully <laughs> October and through October. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jason? You can find my group practice uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, CB, at CBT SoCal. And then you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, uh, at CBT Sports Psych. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and I will be starting uh, my own podcast in the fall called Movie House Sports Psychology. And I'll be doing the same kind of thing, talking about uh, movies uh, through the lens of mental health and sports psychology. So I'm excited about that. Wow. Very cool. And you're all welcome to join. Um, well, when that gets up and running, just let me know because I've show notes and I'm going to be linking all of your Twitter handles and everything so people afterwards can look and just click if they're interested. So once that's up and running, let me know and that link will be added to the show note. Um, yeah, and then actually I do have a, a trailer up. So I haven't, I don't have episodes uh, recorded and posted, but the trailer is up. Uh, so I can send you a link. And uh, if anybody wants you right now, they can subscribe so that they'll get episodes when it okay. comes out. Uh, Kristen. As much as Simon has been trying to convince me to be on all the social media platforms and get my own website, I still have not done it yet. Um, so you can really only find me at um, NYU Langone's website. Um, last name is Zuhani, which is S-Z-U-H-A-N-Y. And maybe someday I will have my own social media too. Okay. Well, if you ever do it, let me know. I'll throw it in the notes. And uh, Simon? I think I'm going to make a Christian Suwani website myself. <laughs> 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 so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take her name and take the domain and just start posting pictures on her behalf. So. That's fine by me. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll source it out. <laughs> You can find me on kristensuwani.com. <laughs> uh, the easiest way is just my name. And if you'll have our names up, if you if you Google will Simon be. Rago and yeah. add.com, that has all my social media icons and other goodies of what conferences and, and, and anything we're writing or working on here. So that's just the most straightforward way nowadays. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank every single one of you for taking time out of your Friday evening to be with us on the podcast. And I think people have learned a tremendous amount today. So thank you uh, for coming on.